0: You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio.
1: Section 5 of Astounding Stories 16, April 1931. Astounding Stories 16, April 1931, by Various. The Exile of Time. Chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 1. Mysterious Girl. The extraordinary incidents began about 1 a.m. in the night of June 8 to 9, 1935. I was walking through Patton Place in New York City with my friend Larry Gregory. My name is George Rankin. My business, and Larry's, are details quite unimportant to this narrative. We had been friends in college. Both of us were working in New York. And with all our relatives in the Middle West, we were sharing an apartment on this Patton Place a short crooked little-known street of not particularly impressive residential buildings lying near the section known as Greenwich village where towering office buildings of the business districts encroached close upon it this night at 1 a.m. it was deserted a taxi stood at a corner its chauffeur had left it there and evidently gone to a nearby lunchroom the street lights were as always inadequate The night was sultry and dark, with a leaden sky and a breathless humidity that presaged a thunderstorm. The houses were mostly unlighted at this hour. There was an occasional apartment house among them, but mostly they were low, ramshackle affairs of brick and stone. We were still three blocks from our apartment, when, without warning, the incidents began which were to plunge us and all the city into disaster we were upon the threshold of a mystery weird and strange but we did not know it mysterious portals were swinging to engulf us and all unknowing we walked into them larry was saying wish we could get a storm to clear this air what the devil george did you hear that we stood listening there had sounded a choking muffled scream we were midway in the block there was not a pedestrian in sight "'nor any vehicle save the abandoned taxi at the corner. "'A woman,' he said. "'Did it come from this house?' "'We were standing before a three-story brick residence. "'All its windows were dark. "'There was a front stoop of several steps "'and a basement entryway. "'The windows were all closed, "'and the place had the look of being unoccupied. "'Not in there, Larry,' I answered. "'It's closed for the summer.' "'But I got no further. "'We heard it again.' and this time it sounded not like a scream but like a woman's voice calling to attract our attention george look over there larry cried the glow from a street light illumined the basement entryway and behind one of the dark windows a girl's face was pressed against the pane larry stood gripping me then drew me forward and down the steps of the entryway there was a girl in the front basement room darkness was behind her "'But we could see her white, frightened face close to the glass. "'She tapped on the pane, and in the silence we heard her muffled voice. "'Let me out. Oh, let me get out.' "'The basement door had a locked iron gate. I rattled it. "'No way of getting in,' I said, then stopped short with surprise. "'What the devil?' "'I joined Larry by the window. The girl was only a few inches from us. "'She had a pale, frightened face.' wide, terrified eyes. Even with that first glimpse, I was transfixed by her beauty, and startled. There was something weird about her. A low-necked, white, satin dress disclosed her snowy shoulders. Her head was surmounted by a pile of snow-white hair, with dangling white curls framing her pale, ethereal beauty. She called again. "'What's the matter with you?' Larry demanded. "'Are you alone in there?' "'What is it?' She backed from the window. We could see her only as a white blob in the darkness of the basement room. I called, Can you hear us? What is it? Then she screamed again, a low scream, but there was infinite terror in it, and again she was at the window. You will not hurt me? Let me... Oh, please let me come out. Her fists pounded the casement. What I would have done, I don't know. I recall wondering if the policeman would be at our corner down the block. He very seldom was there. I heard Larry saying, What the hell? I'll get her out. George, get me that brick. Now get back, girl. I'm going to smash the window. But the girl kept her face pressed against the pane. I had never seen such terrified eyes. Terrified at something behind her in the house. And equally frightened at us. I called to her. Come to the door. "'Can't you come to the door and open it?' I pointed to the basement gate. "'Open it. Can you hear me?' "'Yes, I can hear you. And you speak my language. But you—you will not hurt me? Where am I? This—this was my house a moment ago. I was living here.' "'Demented,' it flashed to me, an insane girl, locked in this empty house. I gripped Larry, said to him— "'Take it easy. There's something queer about this. We can't smash windows. Let's—' "'You open the door,' he called to the girl. "'I cannot.' "'Why? Is it locked on the inside?' "'I don't know. Because—' "'Oh, hurry! If he—if it comes again—' We could see her turn to look behind her. Larry demanded, "'Are you alone in there?' "'Yes, now. But—oh, a moment ago he was here.' "'Then come to the door. I cannot. I don't know where it is. This is so strange and dark, a place. And yet it was my home, just a little time ago.' Demented. And it seemed to me that her accent was very queer. A foreigner, perhaps. She went suddenly into frantic fear. Her fists beat the window glass almost hard enough to shatter it. "'We'd better get her out,' I agreed. "'Smash it, Larry.' Yes. He waved at the girl. Get back. I'll break the glass. Get away so you won't get hurt. The girl receded into the dimness. Watch your hand, I cautioned. Larry took off his coat and wrapped his hand and the brick in it. I gazed behind us. The street was still empty. The slight commotion we had made had attracted no attention. The girl cried out again as Larry smashed the pane. "'Easy,' I called to her. "'Take it easy. "'We won't hurt you.' "'The splintering glass fell inward, "'and Larry pounded around the casement "'until it was all clear. "'The rectangular opening was fairly large. "'We could see a dim basement room "'of dilapidated furniture, "'a door opening into a back room, "'the girl, "'nearby a white shape watching us. "'There seemed no one else. "'Come on,' I said. "'You can get out here.' but she backed away. I was half in the window, so I swung my legs over the sill. Larry came after me, and together we advanced on the girl who shrank before us. Then suddenly she ran to meet us, and I had the sudden feeling that she was not insane. Her fear of us was overshadowed by her terror at something else in this dark, deserted house. The terror communicated itself to Larry and me. Something eerie here. Come on, Larry muttered. Let's get her out of here. I had indeed no desire to investigate anything further. The girl let us help her through the window. I stood in the entryway holding her arms. Her dress was of billowing white satin with a single red rose at the breast. Her snowy arms and shoulders were bare. White hair was piled high on her small head. Her face, still terrified, showed parted red lips. A little round black beauty patch adorned one of her powdered cheeks. The thought flashed to me that this was a girl in a fancy dress costume. This was a white wig she was wearing. I stood with the girl in the entryway, at a loss what to do. I held her soft, warm arms. The perfume of her enveloped me. "'What do you want us to do with you?' I demanded softly. McGuire, the policeman on the block, might at any moment pass. "'We might get arrested. What's the matter with you? Can't you explain? Are you hurt?' "'She was staring as though I were a ghost or some strange animal. "'Oh, take me away from this place. "'I will talk, though I do not know what to say.' "'Demented or sane, I had no desire to have her fall into the clutches of the police, "'nor could we very well take her to our apartment. "'But there was my friend, Dr. Alton, alienist, who lived within a mile of here. "'We'll take her to Alton's,' I said to Larry, "'and find out what this means. "'She isn't crazy.' a sudden wild emotion swept me then whatever this mystery more than anything in the world i did not want the girl to be insane larry said there was a taxi down the street it came now slowly along the deserted block the chauffeur had perhaps heard us and was cruising past to see if we were possible fares he halted at the curb the girl had quieted but when she saw the taxi her face registered wildest terror and she shrank against me "'No, no, don't let it kill me.' "'Larry and I were pulling her forward. "'What the devil's the matter with you?' "'Larry demanded again. "'She was suddenly wildly fighting with us. "'No, that mechanism.' "'Get her in it,' Larry panted. "'We'll have the neighborhood on us.' "'It seemed the only thing to do. "'We flung her, scrambling and fighting, into the taxi. "'To the half-frightened, reluctant driver, "'Larry said vigorously, "'It's all right.' We're just taking her to a doctor. Hurry and get us away from here. There's good money in it for you. The promise and the reassurance of the physician's address convinced the chauffeur. We whirled off toward Washington Square. Within the swaying taxi, I sat holding the trembling girl. She was sobbing now, but quieting. There, I murmured. We won't hurt you. We're just taking you to a doctor. You can explain to him. He's very intelligent. Yes. She said softly, "'Yes, thank you. I'm all right now.' She relaxed against me. So beautiful, so dainty a creature. Larry leaned toward us. "'You're better now?' "'Yes.' "'That's fine. You'll be all right. Don't think about it.' He was convinced she was insane. I breathed again the vague hope that it might not be so. She was huddled against me. Her face, upturned to mine, had color in it now, red lips, a faint rose tint in the pale cheeks.' She murmured, Is this New York? My heart sank. Yes, I answered. Of course it is. But when? What do you mean? I mean, what year? Why, 1935. She caught her breath. And your name is? George Rankin. And I, her laugh, had a queer break in it. I am Mistress Mary Atwood. But just a few minutes ago, Oh, am I dreaming? Surely I'm not insane. Larry again leaned over us. What are you talking about? You're friendly, you two. Like men. Strange. So very strange-looking young men. This this carriage without any horses, I know now it won't hurt me. She sat up. Take me to your doctor, and then to the general of your army. I must see him and warn him. Warn you all. She was turning half hysterical again. She laughed wildly. Your general. He won't be General Washington, of course, but I must warn him. She gripped me. You think I am demented, but I am not. I am Mary Atwood, daughter of Major Charles Atwood of General Washington's staff. That was my home, where you broke the window, but it did not look like that a few moments ago. You tell me this is the year 1935, but just a few moments ago I was living in the year 1777. End of chapter 1 CHAPTER TWO FROM OUT OF THE PAST SANE, said Dr. Alton. Of course she's sane. He stood gazing down at Mary Atwood. He was a tall, slim fellow, this famous young alienist, with dark hair turning slightly gray at the temples and a neat black mustache that made him look older than he was. Dr. Alton, at this time, in spite of his eminence, had not yet turned forty. She's sane, he reiterated, though from what you tell me it's a wonder that she is. He smiled gently at the girl. If you don't mind, my dear, tell us just what happened to you as calmly as you can. She sat by an electrolier in Dr. Alton's living room. The yellow light gleamed on her white satin dress, on her white shoulders, her beautiful face with its little round black beauty patch, and the curls of the white wig dangling to her neck. From beneath the billowing flounced skirt, the two satin points of her slippers showed a beauty of the year seventeen seventy seven This thing so strange, I gazed at her with quickened pulse. It seemed that I was dreaming that, as I sat before her in my tweed business suit with its tubular trousers, I was the anachronism. This should have been candlelight illumining us. I should have been a powdered and bewigged gallant in gorgeous satin and frilled shirt to match her dress. How strange! How futuristic we three men of 1935 must have looked to her! And this city through which we had whirled her in the throbbing taxi! No wonder she was overwrought! Alton fumbled in the pockets of his dressing gown for cigarettes. Go ahead, Miss Mary. You are among friends. I promise we will try and understand. She smiled. Yes, I... "'I believe you.' "'Her voice was low. "'She sat staring at the floor, choosing her words carefully, "'and though she stumbled a little, her story was coherent. "'Upon the wings of her words, my fancy conjured that other time world. "'More than a hundred and fifty years ago. "'I was at home tonight,' she began. "'Tonight after dinner. "'I have no relatives except my father. "'He is General Washington's aide. "'We live, our home is north of the city.' I was alone, except for the servants. Father sent word to-night that he was coming to see me. The messenger got through the British lines. But the redcoats are everywhere. They were quartered in our house. For months I have been little more than a servant to a dozen of my Lord Howe's officers. They are gentlemen, though. I have no complaint. Then they left, and Father, knowing it, wanted to come to see me. He should not have tried it. Our house is watched. He promised me he would not wear the British red. She shuddered. Anything but that, to have him executed as a spy. He would not risk that, but wear merely a long black cloak. He was to come about ten o'clock, but at midnight there was no sign of him. The servants were asleep. I sat alone, and every pounding hoofbeat on the road matched my heart. Then I went into the garden. There was a dim moon in and out of the clouds. It was hot, like tonight. I mean, why, it was tonight? It's so strange. In the silence of Alton's living room, we could hear the hurried ticking of his little mantel clock, and from the street outside came the roar of a passing elevated train and the honk of a taxi. This was New York of 1935. But to me, the crowding ghosts of the past were here. In fancy, I saw the white pillars of the moonlit Atwood home, a garden with a dirt road beside it red-coated british soldiers passing and to the south the little city of new york extending northward from crooked maiden lane and the bowling green go on mistress mary i sat on a bench in the garden and suddenly before me there was a white ghost a shape a wraith of something which a moment before had not been there i sat too frightened to move i could not call out I tried to, but the sound would not come. The shape was like a mist, a little ball of cloud in the center of the garden lawn. Then, in a second or two, it was solid, a thing like a shining cage with crisscrossing white bars. It was like a room, a metal cage like a room. I thought that the thing was a phantom or that I was asleep and dreaming, but it was real. Alton interrupted. How big was it? as large as this room, perhaps larger, but it was square, and about twice as high as a man. A cage, then, some twenty feet square and twelve feet high. She went on. The cage door opened. I think I was standing, then, and I tried to run out, but could not. The the thing came from the door of the cage and walked toward me. It was about ten feet tall. It looked, oh, it looked like a man. She buried her face in her hands. Again, the room was silent. Larry was seated, staring at her. All of us were breathless. Like a man? Alton prompted, gently. Yes, like a man. She raised her white face. This girl out of the past. Admiration for her swept me anew. She was bravely trying to smile. Like a man. A thing with legs, a body, a great round head, and swaying arms a jointed man of metal you surely must know all about them a robot larry muttered you have them here i suppose like that rumbling carriage without horses this jointed iron man came walking toward me and it spoke a most horrible hollow voice but it seemed almost human and what it said i do not know for i fainted i remember falling as it came walking toward me with stiff-jointed legs when i came to my senses i was in the cage Everything was humming and glowing. There was a glow outside, the bars like a moonlit mist. The iron monster was sitting at a table with peculiar things, mechanical things. "'The controls of the cage mechanisms,' said Alton. "'How long were you in the cage?' "'I don't know. Time seemed to stop. Everything was silent except the humming noises. They were everywhere. I guess I was only half conscious.' the monster sat motionless in front of him were big round clock faces with whirling hands oh i suppose you don't find this strange but to me could you see anything outside the cage alton persisted no just a fog but it was crawling and shifting yes i remember now i could not see anything out there but i had the thought the feeling that there were tremendous things to see the monster spoke again and told me to be careful That we were going to stop its iron hands pulled at levers then the humming grew fainter died away and i felt a shock i thought i had fainted again i could just remember being pulled through the cage door the monster left me on the ground it said lie there for i will return very soon the cage vanished i saw a great cliff of stone near me it had yellow lighted openings high up in the air "'and big stone fences hemmed me in. "'Then I realized I was in an open space "'between a lot of stone houses, "'one towered like a cliff "'or the side of a pyramid. "'The backyard of that house on Patton Place,' "'Larry exclaimed. "'He looked at me. "'Has it any backyard, George?' "'How should I know?' "'I retorted. "'Probably has.' "'Go on,' Alton was prompting. "'That is nearly all.' I found a doorway leading to a dark room. I crawled through it toward a glow of light. I passed through another room. I thought I was in a nightmare, and that this was my home. I remembered that the cage had not moved. It had hardly lurched, just trembled, vibrated. But this was not my home. The rooms were small and dark. Then I peered through a window on a strange stone street, and saw these strange-looking young men. And that is all. All I can tell you. She had evidently held herself calm by a desperate effort. She broke down now, sobbing without restraint. End of chapters 1 and 2
2: Recording by John Burlinson Astounding Stories 16 April 1931 By Various THE EXILES OF TIME BY RAY CUMMINGS CHAPTERS THREE AND FOUR CHAPTER THREE TUG THE CRIPPLE The portals of this mystery had swung wide to receive us. The tumbling events which menaced all our world of 1935 were upon us now. A maelstrom, a torrent, in the midst of which we were caught up like tiny bits of cork and whirled away. But we thought we understood the mystery. We believed we were acting for the best. What we did was no doubt ill-considered, but the human mind is so far from omniscient. And this thing was so strange. Alton said, "'You have a right to be overwrought, Mistress Mary Atwood, "'but this thing is as strange to us as it is to you. "'I called that iron monster a robot, "'but it does not belong to our age. "'If it does, I have never seen one such as you describe. "'And travelling through time—' "'He smiled down at her. "'That is not a commonplace everyday occurrence to us, I assure you. THE DIFFERENCE IS THAT IN THIS WORLD OF OURS WE CAN UNDERSTAND, uh, OR AT LEAST EXPLAIN, THESE THINGS AS BEING SCIENTIFIC, AND SO THEY HAVE NOT THE TERROR OF THE SUPERNATURAL. MARY WAS CALMER NOW. SHE RETURNED HIS SMILE. I REALIZE THAT, OR AT LEAST I AM TRYING TO REALIZE IT. WHAT A LEVEL-HEADED GIRL WAS THIS. I touched her arm. You are very wonderful. Alton brushed me away. Let's try and reduce this to rationality. The cage was, is, I should say, since of course it still exists. That cage is a time-traveling vehicle. It is traveling back and forth through time, operated by a robot. Call it that. "'a pseudo-human monster fashioned of metal in the guise of a man. "'Even Alton had to force himself to speak calmly "'as he gazed from one to the other of us. "'It came, no doubt, from some future age, "'where half-human mechanisms are common, "'and time-travelling is known. "'That cage probably does not travel in space, but only in time.' In the future, somewhere, the space of that house on Patent Place may be the laboratory of a famous scientist. And in the past, in the year 1777, that same space was the garden of Mistress Atwood's home. So much is obvious. But why? Why? Larry burst out. "'Did that iron monster stop in 1777 and abduct this girl? "'And why, I intercepted, did it stop here in 1935?' "'I gazed at Mary. "'And it told you it would return?' "'Yes.' Alton was pondering. "'There must be some connection, of course. "'Mistress Mary, had you never seen this cage before?' No? nor anything like it? Was anything like that known to your time? No? Oh, I cannot truly say that. Some people believe in phantoms, omens, and witchcraft. There was in Salem in the Massachusetts colony not so many years ago. I don't mean that. I mean time-traveling. There were soothsayers and fortune-tellers, AND NECROMANCERS WITH CRYSTALS TO GAZE INTO THE FUTURE. WE STILL HAVE THEM, ALTON SMILED. YOU SEE, WE DON'T KNOW MUCH MORE THAN YOU DO ABOUT THIS THING. I SAID, DID YOU HAVE ANY ENEMY, ANYONE WHO WISHED YOU HARM? SHE THOUGHT A MOMENT. NO? YES, THERE WAS ONE. SHE SHUDDERED AT THE MEMORY. A man, a cripple, a horribly repulsive man of about one score in ten years. He lives down near the battery. She paused. Tell us about him, Larry urged. She nodded. But what could he have to do with this? He is horribly deformed. Thin, bent legs— "'A body like a cask, and a bulging forehead with goggling eyes? "'My Lord Howe's officers say he is very intelligent and very learned, "'loyal to the king, too. "'There was a munitions plot in the Bermudas, "'and this cripple and Lord Howe were concerned in it. "'But father likes the fellow and says that in reality he wishes our cause well. "'He is rich.' But you don't want to hear all this. He he made love to me, and I repulsed him. There was a scene with Father, and Father had our lackeys throw him out. That was a year ago. He cursed horribly. He vowed then that some day he, he would have me and get revenge on Father. But he is kept away. I have not seen him for a twelve-month. We were silent. I chanced to look at Alton, and a strange look was on his face. He said abruptly, What is this cripple's name, Mistress Mary? Tug. He is known to all the city as Tug, just that. I never heard any Christian name. Alton rose sharply to his feet. A cripple named Tug. Yes, she affirmed wonderingly does it mean anything to you?' Alton swung on me. "'What is the number of that house on Patton Place? Did you happen to notice?' I had, and, wondering, I told him. "'Just a minute,' he said. "'I want to use the phone.' He came back to us in a moment. His face was very solemn. "'That house on Patton Place is owned by a man named Tug. "'I just called a reporter friend. "'He remembers a certain case. "'He confirmed what I thought. "'Mistress Mary, did this Tug in your time ever consult doctors, "'trying to have his crippled body made whole?' "'Why, of course he did. "'I have heard that many times.' but his crippled, deformed body cannot be cured. Alton checked Larry and me when we would have broken in with astonished questions. He said, "'Don't ask me what it means. I don't know. But I think that this cripple, this tug, has lived both in 1777 and 1935 and is travelling between them in this time-travelling cage.' "'and perhaps he is the human master of that robot.' Alton made a vehement gesture. "'But we'd better not theorize. "'It's too fantastic. "'Here is the story of Tug in our time. "'He came to see me some three years ago, in 1932, I think. "'He offered any price if I could cure his crippled body.' All the New York medical fraternity knew him. He seemed sane, but obsessed with the idea that he must have a body like other men. Like Faust, who, as an old man, paid the price of his soul to become youthful, he wanted to have the beautiful body of a young man. Alton was speaking vehemently. My thoughts ran ahead of his words. I could imagine with gruesome fancy so many things. A cripple, traveling to different ages, seeking to be cured, desiring a different body. Alton was saying, "'This fellow Tug lived alone in that house on Patton Place. He was all you say of him, Mistress Mary. Hideously repulsive, a sinister personality, about thirty years old.' And, in 1932, he got mixed up with a girl who had a somewhat dubious reputation herself, a dancer, a frequenter of nightclubs, as they used to be called. Her name was Doris Johns, something like that. She evidently thought she could get money out of Tug. Whatever it was, there was a big uproar. The girl had him arrested, saying that he had assaulted her, THE POLICE HAD QUITE A TIME WITH THE CRIPPLE. LARRY AND I REMEMBERED A FEW OF THE DETAILS OF IT NOW, THOUGH NEITHER OF US HAD BEEN IN NEW YORK AT THE TIME. ALTON WENT ON. TUG FOUGHT WITH THE POLICE, WENT BERSERK. I imagine THEY HANDLED HIM PRETTY ROUGHLY. IN THE MAGISTRATE'S COURT HE MADE ANOTHER SCENE AND FOUGHT WITH THE COURT ATTENDANTS. With ungovernable rage he screamed vituperatives and was carried kicking, biting, and snarling from the courtroom. He threatened some wild, weird revenge upon all the city officials, even upon the city itself. "'Nice sort of chap,' Larry commented. But Alton did not smile. The magistrate could only hold him for contempt of court. The girl had absolutely no evidence to support her accusation of assault. Tug was finally dismissed. A week later, he murdered the girl. The details are unimportant, but he did it. The police had him trapped in his house, had the house surrounded, this same one on Patton Place. But when they burst in to take him, he had inexplicably vanished. He was never heard from again. ALTON CONTINUED TO REGARD US WITH GRIM, SOLEMN FACE. NEVER HEARD FROM UNTIL TONIGHT, AND NOW WE HEAR OF HIM. HOW HE VANISHED WITH THE POLICE GUARDING EVERY EXIT TO THAT HOUSE. WELL, IT'S OBVIOUS, ISN'T IT? HE WENT INTO ANOTHER TIME WORLD, BACK TO 1777, DOUBTLESS. MARY ATWOOD GAVE A LITTLE CRY. "'I had forgotten that I must warn you. "'Tug told me once, before Father and I quarreled with him, "'that he had a mysterious power. "'He was a most wonderful man,' he said, "'and there was a world in the future, "'he mentioned 1934 or 1935, which he hated, "'a great city whose people had wronged him, "'and he was going to bring death to them, "'death to them all. "'I did not heed him.' I thought he was demented, raving. Alton's little clock ticked with tumultuous heartbeat through another silence. The great city around us, even though this was two o'clock in the morning, throbbed with a myriad of blended sounds. A warning! Was the girl from out of the past giving us a warning of coming disaster to this great city? Alton was pacing the floor. "'What are we to do? Tell the authorities? "'Take Mistress Mary Atwood to police headquarters "'and inform them that she has come from the year 1777? "'And that if we are not careful there will be an attack on New York?' "'No,' I burst out. "'I could fancy how we would be received at police headquarters if we did that, "'and our pictures in tomorrow's newspapers.' Mary's picture, with a jibing headline ridiculing us. No, echoed Alton. I have no intention of doing it. I'm not so foolish as that. He stopped before Mary. What do you want to do? You're obviously an exceptionally intelligent, level-headed girl. Heaven knows you need to be. I... I want to get back home, she stammered. A pang shot through me as she said it. A hundred and fifty years to separate us. A vast gulf. An impassable barrier. That mechanism said it would return. Exactly, agreed Alton. An excitement was upon us all. Exactly what I mean. Shall we chance it? Try it? There's nothing else I can think of to do.' I HAVE A REVOLVER AND TWO HUNTING RIFLES. JUST WHAT DO YOU MEAN? I DEMANDED. I MEAN WE'LL TAKE MY CAR AND GO TO TUG'S HOUSE ON PATTON PLACE, RIGHT NOW, AND IF THAT MECHANICAL MONSTER RETURNS, WE'LL SEIZE IT. ALTON, THE USUALLY CALM, PRECISE MAN OF SCIENCE, WAS TENSELY VEHEMENT. SEIZE IT? WHY NOT? Three of us armed ought to be able to overcome a robot. "'Then we'll seize the time-travelling cage. "'Perhaps we can operate it. "'If not, with it in our possession, "'we'll at least have something to show the authorities. "'There'll be no ridicule then.' "'Our inescapable destiny was making us plunge so rashly into this mystery. "'With the excitement and the strange fantasy of it upon us, we thought we were acting for the best. Within a quarter of an hour, armed and with a long overcoat and a scarf to hide Mary Atwood's beauty, we took Alton's car and drove to Patton Place. Chapter Four The Fight with the Robot Patrolman McGuire quite evidently had not passed through Patton Place since we left it, or at least he had not noticed the broken window. The house appeared as before, dark, silent, deserted, and the broken basement window yawned with its wide black opening. "'I'll leave the car around on the other street,' Alton said as slowly we passed the house. "'Quick! No one's in sight. You three get out here.' We crouched in the dim entryway, and in a moment he joined us. I clung to Mary Atwood's arms. You're not afraid? I asked. No. Yes, of course I'm afraid, but I want to do what we planned. I want to go back to my own world, to my father. Inside, Alton whispered. I'll go first. You two follow with her. I CAN SAY NOW THAT WE SHOULD NOT HAVE TAKEN HER INTO THAT HOUSE. IT IS SO EASY TO LOOK BACK UPON WHAT ONE MIGHT HAVE DONE. WE CLIMBED THROUGH THE WINDOW INTO THE DARK FRONT BASEMENT ROOM. THERE WAS ONLY SILENCE, AND OUR FAINTLY PADDING FOOTSTEPS ON THE CARPETED FLOOR. THE FURNITURE WAS SHROUDED WITH COTTON COVERS, STANDING LIKE GHOSTS IN THE GLOOM. I clutched the loaded rifle which Alton had given me. Larry was similarly armed, and Alton carried a revolver. "'Which way, Mary?' I whispered. "'You're sure it was outdoors?' "'Yes. This way, I think.' We passed through the connecting door. The back room seemed to be a dismantled kitchen. "'You stay here with her a moment.' Alton whispered to me. Come on, Larry, let's make sure no one, nothing, is down here. I stood silent with Mary, while they prowled about the lower floor. It may have come and gone, I whispered. Yes, she was trembling against me. It seemed to me an eternity while we stood there listening to the faint footfalls of Larry and Alton. Once they must have stood quiet. Then the silence leaped and crowded us. It was horrible to listen to a pregnant silence which every moment might be split by some weird, unearthly sound. Larry and Alton returned. Seems to be all clear, Alton whispered. LET'S GO INTO THE BACKYARD. THE LITTLE YARD WAS DIM. THE BIG APARTMENT HOUSE AGAINST ITS REAR WALL LOOMED WITH A BLANK BRICK FACE, SAVE THAT THERE WERE WINDOWS SOME EIGHT STORIES UP. ONLY A FEW WINDOWS OVERLOOKED THIS DIM AREA WITH ITS HIGH ENCLOSING WALLS. THE SPACE WAS SOME FORTY FEET SQUARE, AND THERE WAS A FADED GRASS PLOT IN THE CENTER. WE CROUCHED NEAR THE KITCHEN DOOR, WITH MARY BEHIND US IN THE ROOM. SHE SAID SHE COULD RECALL THE CAGE HAVING STOOD NEAR THE CENTER OF THE YARD, WITH ITS DOOR FACING THIS WAY. NEARLY AN HOUR PASSED. IT SEEMED THAT THE DAWN MUST BE NEAR, BUT IT WAS ONLY AROUND FOUR O'CLOCK. THE SAME STORM CLOUDS HUNG OVERHEAD, A THREATENING STORM WHICH WOULD NOT BREAK the heat was oppressing. It's come and gone, Larry whispered. Or it isn't coming. I guess that this— And then it came. We were just outside the doorway, crouching against the shadowed wall of the house. I had Mary close behind me, my rifle ready. There, whispered Alton. We all saw it, A faint, luminous mist out near the center of the yard. A crawling, shifting ball of fog. Alton and Larry, one on each side of me, shifted sidewise, away from me. Mary stood and cast off her dark overcoat. We men were in dark clothes, but she stood gleaming white against the dark rectangle of doorway. It was as we had arranged. A moment only, she stood there. Then she moved back, further behind me in the black kitchen. In that moment, the cage had materialized. We were hoping its occupant had seen the girl and not us. A breathless moment passed while we stared for the first time at this strange thing from the unknown. A formless, glowing mist. IT QUICKLY GATHERED ITSELF INTO SOLIDITY. IT SEEMED TO SHRINK. IT TOOK FORM. FROM A WRAITH OF A CAGE, IN A SECOND, IT WAS SOLID. AND SO SILENTLY, SO SWIFTLY, CAME THIS THING OUT OF TIME INTO WHAT WE CALL THE PRESENT. A DIM YARD, A SECOND AGO, HAD BEEN EMPTY. THE CAGE STOOD THERE, A THING OF GLEAMING SILVER BARS, It seemed to enclose a single room. From within its dim interior came a faint glow, which outlined something standing at the bars, peering out. The doorway was facing us. There had been utter silence, but suddenly, as though to prove how solid was this apparition, we heard the clank of metal, and the door slid open. I turned to make sure that Mary was hiding well behind me. The way back to the street, if need for escape arose, was open to her. I turned again to face the shining cage. In the doorway something stood, peering out, a light behind it. It was a great jointed thing of dark metal some ten feet high. For a moment it stood motionless. I could not see its face clearly, though I knew there was a suggestion of human features and two great round glowing spots of eyes. It stepped forward toward us, a jointed, stiff-legged step. Its legs were dangling loosely. I heard one of its mailed hands clank against its sides. Now, Alton whispered. I saw Alton's revolver leveling up AND MY OWN RIFLE WENT UP. AIM AT ITS FACE, I murmured. WE PULLED OUR TRIGGERS TOGETHER, AND TWO SPURTS OF FLAME SPAT BEFORE US. BUT THE THING HAD STOPPED AN INSTANT BEFORE, AND WE MISSED. THEN CAME LARRY'S SHOT, AND THEN CHAOS. I RECALL HEARING THE PING OF LARRY'S BULLET AGAINST THE MAILED BODY OF THE ROBOT. At that it crouched, and from it leaped a dull red-black beam of light. I heard Mary scream. She had not fled, but was clinging to me. I cast her off. "'Run! Get back! Get away!' I cried. Larry shouted, as we all stood bathed in the dull light from the robot. "'Look out! It sees us!' He fired again into the light and murmured, "'Why? Why?' A great surprise and terror was in his tone. Beside me, with half-leveled revolver, Alton stood transfixed, and he, too, was muttering something. All this happened in an instant, and there I was, aware that I was trying to get my rifle up for firing again. But I could not. My arms stiffened. I tried to take a step, "'tried to move a foot, but could not. "'I was rooted there, "'held as though by some giant magnet to the ground. "'This horrible dull red light. "'It was cold, a frigid, paralyzing blast. "'The blood ran like cold water in my veins. "'My feet were heavy with the weight of my body pressing them down. "'Then the robot was moving, coming forward.' holding the light upon us. I thought I heard its voice, and a horrible, hollow, rasping laugh. My brain was chilling. I had confused thoughts, impressions, vague and dreamlike, as though in a dream I felt myself standing there with Mary clinging to me. Both of us were frozen inert upon our feet. I tried to shout, BUT MY TONGUE WAS TOO THICK, MY THROAT SEEMED SWELLING INSIDE. I HEARD ALTON'S REVOLVER CLATTER TO THE STONE PAVEMENT OF THE YARD, AND SAW HIM FALL FORWARD, OUT. I FELT THAT IN ANOTHER INSTANT I TOO WOULD FALL, THIS DAMNABLE, CHILLING LIGHT. THEN THE BEAM TURNED PARTLY AWAY, AND FELL MORE FULLY UPON LARRY. With his youth and greater strength than Alton's or mine, he had resisted its first blast. His weapon had fallen. Now he stopped and tried to seize it, but he lost his balance and staggered backward against the house wall. And then the robot was upon him. It sprang this mechanism, this machine in human form and with whatever pseudo-human intelligence actuated its giant metal body, it reached under Larry for his rifle. Its great mailed hand swept the ground, seized the rifle, and flung it away, and as Larry twisted sidewise, the robot's arm with a sweep caught him and rolled him across the yard. When he stopped, he lay motionless. I heard myself thickly calling to Mary, and the light flashed again upon us, and then we fell forward. Clinging together, we fell. I did not quite lose consciousness. It seemed that I was frozen and drifting off half into a nightmare sleep. Great metal arms were gathering Mary and me from the ground, lifting us, carrying us, We were in the cage. I felt myself lying on the grid of a metal floor. I could vaguely see the crossed bars of the ceiling overhead, and the latticed walls around me. Then the dull red light was gone. The chill was gone. I was warming. The blessed warm blood again was coursing through my veins, reviving me, bringing back my strength. I turned over, and found Mary lying beside me. I heard her softly murmur, "'George! George Rankin!' The giant mechanism clanked the door closed, and came with stiff, stilted steps back into the center of the cage. I heard the hollow rumble of its voice, chuckling as its hand pulled a switch." At once the cage-room seemed to reel. It was not a physical movement, though, but more a reeling of my senses, a wild shock to all my being. Then, after a nameless interval, I steadied. Around me was a humming, glowing intensity of tiny sounds and infinitely small, infinitely rapid vibrations. The whole room grew luminous, The robot, seated now at a table, showed for a moment as thin as an apparition. All this room, Mary lying beside me, the mechanism, myself, all this was imponderable, intangible, unreal, and outside the bars stretched a shining mist of movement. Blurred, shifting shapes over a vast, illimitable vista, changing things, melting landscapes, silent, tumbling, crowded events blurred by our movement as we swept past them. We were traveling through time. End of chapter four.
0: Recording by K. Hand Astounding Stories, 16, April 1931, by Various The Exiles of Time, by Ray Cummings Chapter 5 The Girl, from 2930 I must take up now the sequence of events as Larry saw them. I was separated from Larry during most of the strange incidents which befell us later, but from his subsequent account of what happened to him i am constructing several portions of this history using my own words based upon larry's description of the events in which i personally did not participate i think that this method avoids complications in the narrative and makes more clear my own and larry's simultaneous actions larry recovered unconscious in the backyard of the house on Patton place probably only a moment or two after mary and i had been snatched away in the time-traveling cage he found himself bruised and battered but apparently without injuries he got to his feet weak and shaken his head was roaring he recalled what had happened to him but it seemed like a dream the backyard was then empty he remembered vaguely that he had seen the mechanism carry mary and me into the cage and that the cage had vanished leary knew that only a few moments had passed the shots had aroused the neighborhood As he stood now against the house wall, dizzily looking around, he was aware of calling voices from the nearby windows. Then Larry stumbled over Alton, who was lying on his face near the kitchen doorway. Still alive, he groaned as Larry fell over him, but he was unconscious. Forgetting all about his weapon, Larry's first thought was to rush out for help. He staggered through the dark kitchen into the front room and through the corridor into the street. Patton Place, as before, was deserted. The houses were dark, the alarm was all in the rear. There were no pedestrians, no vehicles, and no sign of a policeman. Dawn was just coming. As Larry turned eastward, he saw, in a patch of clearing sky, stars paling with the coming daylight. With uncertain steps out in the middle of the street, Larry ran eastward through the middle of the street, hoping that at the next corner he might encounter someone, or find a telephone over which he might call the police. But he had not gone more than five hundred feet when suddenly he stopped, stood there wavering, panting, staring with whirling senses. Near the middle of the street, with the faint dawn behind it, a ball of gathering mist had appeared directly in his path. It was a luminous, shining mist, and it was a gathering into form. In seconds a small glowing cage of white luminous bars stood there in the street, where there had just been nothing. It was not the time-travelling cage from the house-yard he had just left. "'No, he knew it was not that one. "'This one was similar, but much smaller. "'The shock of its appearance held Larry for a moment transfixed. "'It had so silently, so suddenly appeared in his path "'that Larry was now within a foot or two of its doorway. "'The doorway slid open, and a man leaped out. "'Behind him a girl peered from the doorway. "'Larry stood gaping, wholly confused. "'The cage had materialized so abruptly "'that the leaping man collided with him "'before either man could avoid the other.' Larry gripped the man before him, struck out with his fists and shouted. The girl in the doorway called frantically, Harl, no noise! Harl, stop him! Then suddenly the two of them were upon Larry and pulling him toward the doorway of the cage. Inside he was jerked. He shouted wildly, but the girl slammed the door. Then in a soft girlish voice, in English, with a curiously indescribable accent and intonation, the girl said hastily, Hold him, Harl, hold him. I'll start the traveler. The black, garbed figure of a slim young man was gripping Larry as the girl pulled a switch and there was a shock, a reeling of Larry's senses, as the cage, motionless in space, sped off into time. It seems needless to encumber this narrative with prolonged details of how Larry explained himself to his two captors, or how they told him who they were and from whence they had come and why. To Larry it was a fantastic—and confusing at first—series of questions and answers. An hour? The words have no meaning they were travelling through time years were minutes the words meaning nothing save how they impressed the vehicle's human occupants to them all it was an interval of mutual distrust which was gradually changing into friendship larry found the two strangers singularly direct singularly forceful in quiet calm fashion singularly keen of perception they had not meant to capture him the encounter had startled them and larry's shouts would have brought others upon the scene almost at once they knew larry was no enemy and told him so and in a moment Larry was pouring out all that had happened to him, into Alton and Mary Atwood and me. This strange thing! But to Larry now, telling it to these strange new companions, it abruptly seemed not fantastic, but only sinister. The robot, an enemy, had captured Mary Atwood and me, and whirled us off in the other, the larger, cage. And in this smaller cage Larry was with friends, for he suddenly found their purpose the same as his. They were chasing this other time-traveler with its semi-human mechanical operator." The young man said, "'You explain it to him, Tina. I will watch.' He was a slim, pale fellow, handsome in a queer, tight-lipped, stern-faced fashion. His close-fitting black silk jacket had a white neck, rouching, and white cuffs. He wore a wide, white silk belt, snug, black silk knee-length trousers, and black stockings. And the girl was similarly dressed. Her black hair was braided and coiled upon her head, and ornaments dangled from her ears. Over her black blouse was a brocaded network jacket, her white belt, compressing her slim waist, dangled with tassels, and there were other tassels on the garters at the knees of her trousers. She was a pale-faced, beautiful girl, with black brows arching in a thin line, with purple-black eyes like sombre pools. She was no more than five feet tall and slim and frail. But, like her companion, there was about her a queer aspect of calm, quiet power, and force of personality." physical vitality merged with an intellect keenly sharp. She sat with Larry on a little bench, listening almost without interruption to his explanation, and then succinctly she gave her own. The young man, Harl, sat at his instruments, with his gauge searching for the other cage, five hundred feet away in space, but in time unknown. And outside the shining bars, Larry could vaguely see the blurred, shifting, melting vistas of New York City hastening through the changes time had brought to it. This young man Harl and this girl Tina lived in New York City in the Time World of 2930 A.D. To Larry it was a thousand years in the future. Tina was the princess of the American nation. It was an hereditary title, non-political, added several hundred years previously as a picturesque symbol. A tradition, something to make less prosaic the political machine of republican government. Tina was loved by her people, we afterward came to learn harl was an aristocrat of the new york city of tina's time world a scientist in the government laboratories under the same roof where tina dwelt harl had worked with another older scientist and so tina told me together they had discovered the secret of time traveling they had built two cages a large and a small which could travel freely through time the smaller vehicle this one in which larry was now speeding was in the time world of twenty nine thirty located in the garden of tina's palace the other, somewhat larger, they had built some five hundred feet distant, just beyond the palace walls, within a great government laboratory. Harl's fellow scientist, the leader in their endeavors, since he was much older and of wider experience, was not altogether trusted by Tina. He took the credit for the discovery of time-traveling, yet, said Tina, it was Harl's genius which in reality had worked out the final problems. And this older scientist was a cripple—a hideously repulsive fellow named Tug. Tug! Tug! exclaimed Leary. "'The same,' said Tina, in her crisp fashion. "'Yes, undoubtedly the same. So you see why what you have told us was of such interest. Tug is a government leader in our world, and now we find he has lived in your time, and in the time of this Mary Atwood.' From his seat at the instrument table Harl burst out. "'So he murdered a girl of 1935, and has abducted another of 1777?' "'You would not have me judge him, Tina.' no one she said may judge without full facts this man here this Larry of nineteen thirty five tells us that only a mechanism is in the larger cage which is what we thought Harl, and this mechanism without a doubt is the treacherous Migel. there was in twenty nine thirty a vast world of machinery the god of the machine had developed them to almost human intricacy almost all the work of the world particularly in america and most particularly in the mechanical center of new york city was done by machinery and the machinery itself was guided handled operated even in some instances constructed by other more intricate machines they were fashioned in pseudo-human form thinking logically acting independently acting mechanisms the robots all but human they were a new race inferior to humans yet similar and in 2930 the machines, slaves of idle human masters, had been developed too highly. They were upon the verge of a revolt. All this Tina briefly sketched now to Larry, and to Larry it seemed a very distant, very academic danger. Yet so soon all of us were plunged into the midst of it. The revolt had not yet come, but it was feared. A great robot named Miggle seemed fomenting it. The revolt was smoldering, at any moment it would burst, and then the machines would rise to destroy the humans. This was the situation when Harl and Tug completed the time-traveling vehicles in this world. They had been tested, but never used. Then Tug had vanished, was gone now, and the larger of the two vehicles was also gone. Both Harl and Tina had always distrusted Tug. They thought him allied to the robots, but they had no proof and suavely he denied it, and helped always with the government activities struggling to keep the mechanical slaves docile and at work. Tug and the larger vehicle had vanished, and so had Miggle, the insubordinate giant mechanism, at which, unknown to the government officials, Tina and Harl had taken the other cage and started in pursuit. It was possible that Tug was loyal, that Miggle had abducted him and stolen the cage. "'Wait!' exclaimed Larry. "'I'm trying to figure this out. It seems to hang together.' it almost does but not quite when did tug vanish from your world to our consciousness tina answered about three hours ago perhaps a little longer than that but look here larry protested according to my story and that of mary atwood tug lived in nineteen thirty five and in seventeen seventy seven for three years confusing but in a moment larry understood it tug could have taken the cage gone to seventeen seventy seven and to nineteen thirty five "'alternated between them for what was to him and to those time-worlds three years, "'then have returned to twenty-nine-thirty on the same day of his departure. "'He would have lived these three years, grown that much older, "'but to the time-world of twenty-nine-thirty, "'neither he nor the cage would have been missed.' "'That,' said Tina, "'is doubtless what he did. "'The cage is travelling again. "'But you, Larry, tell us only Miggle is in it.' "'I couldn't say that of my own knowledge,' said Larry. "'Mary Atwood said so it held only the mechanism you called miggle and now miggle has with him mary and my friend george rankin we must reach them we want that quite as much as you do said harl and to find tug if he is a friend we must save him if a traitor punish him larry began but can you get to the other cage only if it stops said tina when it stops i should say come here said harl i will show you larry crossed the glowing room He had forgotten its aspect, the ghostly unreality around him. He, too, his body, like Harl's and Tina's, was of the same wraith-like substance. Then suddenly Larry's viewpoint shifted. The room and its occupants were real and tangible, and outside the glowing bars, everything out there was the unreality. "'Here,' said Harl, "'I will show you. It is not visible yet.'" Each of the cages was equipped with an intricate device, strange of name, which Larry and I have since termed a time-telespectroscope. Larry saw it now as a small metal box with tuning vibration dials, batteries, coils, a series of tiny prisms, and an image mirror. The whole surmounted by what appeared the barrel of a small telescope. Harl had it leveled and was gazing through it. Footnote: The workings of the time telespectroscope involve all the intricate postulates and mathematical formulae of time-traveling itself. As a matter of practicality, however, the results obtained are simple of understanding the etheric vibratory rate of the vehicles while travelling through time was constantly changing through the telespectroscope one cage was visible to the other across the five hundred feet of intervening space when they approached a simultaneous time when they so to speak were tuned in unison thus harl explained the other cage would show as a ghost the faintest of wraiths over a time distance of some five or ten years and the closer in time they approached it the more solid it would appear And footnote. The enemy cage was not visible now, but Harl and Tina had glimpsed it on several occasions. What vast realms time opens within a single small segment of space. The larger vehicle seemed speeding back and forth. A dash into the year seventeen seventy seven, as Larry learned from Mary Atwood. And there had been several evidences of the cage halting in nineteen thirty five. Larry's account explained two such pauses, but the others? those others which had brought to the city of new york such amazing disaster we did not learn of them until much later but alton lived through them and presently i shall reconstruct them from his account the larger cage was difficult to trace in its sweep along the corridors of time never once had tina and harl been able to stop simultaneously with it for a year has so many separate days and hours the nearest they came was the halt in the night of june eighth through ninth when they encountered Larry, and, startled, seized him, and moved on again. Harl continued to gaze through the eyepiece of the detecting instrument, but nothing showed, and the mirror grid on the table was dark. But— Which way are we going? Larry stammered. Back, said Tina, the retrograde. Wait! Do not do that! Larry had turned toward where the bars, less luminous, showed a dark rectangle like a window. The desire swept him to gaze out at the shining, changing scene— "'But Tina checked him. "'Do not do that. "'Not yet. "'It is too great a shock in the retrograde. "'It was to me. "'But where are we?' "'In answer she gestured toward a series of tiny dials on the table edge. "'There were at least two score of them laid in a triple bank. "'Dials to record the passing minutes, hours, days, the years, the centuries. "'Larry stared at the small whirring pointers. "'Some were a blur of swift whirling movement, the hours and days.' Tina showed Larry how to read them. The cage was passing through the year 1880. In a few moments of Larry's consciousness it was 1799, then 1793. The infant American nation was here now. But with the cage retrograding, soon they would be in the Revolutionary War. Tina said, The other cage may go back to 1777, if Tug meant ill to Mary Atwood, or want revenge upon her father, as you said. We shall see. They had reached 1790 when Harl gave a low ejaculation. "'You see it?' Tina murmured. "'Yes, very faintly.' Larry bent tensely forward. "'Will it show in the mirror?' "'Yes, presently. We are about ten years from it. If we get closer, the mirror will show it.' But the mirror held dark. No. Now it was glowing a trifle. A vague luminosity. Tina moved toward the instrument controls nearby. "'Watch closely, Harl. I will slow us down.' It seemed to Larry that the humming with which everything around him was endowed now began descending in pitch, and his head suddenly was unsteady. A singular, wild, queer feeling was with him—an unrest, a tugging torment of every tiny cell of his body. Tina said, Hold steady, Larry, for when we stop. Will it shock me? Yes, at first, but the shock will not harm you. It is nearly all mental. The mirror held an image now. The other cage— Larry saw, on the six-inch square mirror surface, a crawling, melting scene of movement, and in the midst of it the image of the other cage faint and spectral. In all the mirrored movement only the apparition of the cage was still, and this marked it, made it visible. Over an interval, while Larry stared, the ghostly image grew plainer. They were approaching its time factor. "'It's stopping,' Harl murmured. Larry was aware that he had left the eyepiece and joined Tina at the controls. "'Tina, let us try to get it right this time.' "'Yes.' "'In 1777. "'But which month, would you say?' "'It has stopped. See?' Larry heard them clicking switches and setting the controls for a stop. Then he felt Tina gently push him. "'Sit here. Standing, you might fall.' He found himself on a bench. He could still see the mirror. The ghost of the other cage was now lined more plainly upon it. "'This month,' said Tina, setting a switch, would you not say so and this day but the hour tina the minute the vast intricate corridors of time it would be in the night hasten harl or we will pass try the night around midnight even miggle has the mechanical intelligence to fear a daylight pausing the controls were set for the stop larry her tina murmuring oh i pray we may have judged with correctness The vehicle was rapidly coming to a stop. Larry gripped the table, struggling to hold firm to his reeling senses. The soundless, grinding halt. His swaying gaze strayed from the mirror. Outside the glowing bars he could now discern the luminous grayness separating. Swift, soundless claps of light and dark alternating. Daylight and darkness. They had been blended, but now they were separating. The passing, retrograding days, a dozen to the second of Larry's consciousness, then fewer, Vivid daylight. Black night. Daylight again. Not too slowly, Harl. We will be seen. Oh, it's gone! Larry saw the mirror go blank. The image on it had flared to great distinctness, faded, and was gone. Darkness was around Larry. Then daylight. Then darkness again. Gone! echoed Harl's disappointed voice. But it's stopped here. Shall we stop, Tina? Yes. Leave the control settings as they are. Larry— Be careful now." A dragging second of gray daylight, a plunge into night, it seemed to Larry that all the universe was soundlessly reeling. Out of the chaos, Tina was saying, "'We have stopped. Are you all right, Larry?' "'Yes,' he stammered. He stood up. The cage-room, with its faint lights, benches and settles, instrument tables and banks of controls, was flooded with moonlight from outside the bars. Night and the moon and stars out there harl slid the door open come let us look the reeling chaos had fallen swiftly from larry with tina's small black and white figure beside him he stood at the threshold of the cage a warm gentle night breeze fanned his face a moonlit landscape lay somnolent around the cage trees were nearby. the cage stood in a corner of a field by a low picket fence behind the trees a ribbon of road stretched away toward a distant shining river Down the road some five hundred feet the white columns of a large square brick house gleamed in the moonlight, and behind the house was a garden and a group of barns and stables. The three in the cage doorway stood whispering, planning, then two of them stepped to the ground. They were Larry and Tina. Harl remained to guard the cage. The two figures on the ground paused a moment and then moved cautiously along the inside line of the fence toward the home of Major Atwood. Strange anachronisms, these two prowling figures— A girl from twenty-nine-thirty, a man from nineteen-thirty-five. And this was revolutionary New York, now. The little city lay well to the south. It was open country up here. The New York of nineteen-thirty-five had melted away and was gone. It was a night in August of seventeen-seventy-seven. End of chapter five Recording by K. Hand Astounding Stories sixteen April 1931 by Various The Exiles of Time by Ray Cummings Chapters 6 and 7 CHAPTER Six: THE NEW YORK MASSACRE OF 1935 Dr. Alton recovered consciousness in the backyard of the house on Patton Place just a few moments after Larry had encountered the smaller time-traveling cage and had been carried off by Harl and Tina. Previously to that, of course, the mysterious mechanism in the guise of a giant man had abducted Mary Atwood and me in the larger time-cage. Alton became aware that people were bending over him. The shots we had taken at the robot had aroused the neighborhood. A policeman arrived. The sleeping neighbors had heard the shots, but it seemed that no one had seen the cage or the metal man who had come from it. Alton said nothing. He was taken to the nearest police station, where grudgingly he told his story. He was laughed at, reprimanded for alcoholism. Evidently, according to the police sergeant, there had been a fight, and Alton had drawn the loser's end. The police confiscated the two rifles and the revolver, and decided that no one but Alton had been hurt. But at best it was a queer affair. Alton had not been shot, he was just stiff with cold. He had said a dull red ray had fallen upon him, and stiffened him with its frigid blast. Utter nonsense. Dr. Alton was a man of standing. It was a reprehensible affair, but he was released upon his own recognizance. He was charged with breaking into the untenanted home of one tug of illegally possessing firearms of disturbing the peace, a variety of offences all rational to the year nineteen thirty five but Alton's case never reached even its hearing at the magistrate's court. He arrived home just after dawn that June ninth, still cold and stiff from the effects of the ray, and bruised and battered by the sweeping blow of Miggle's great iron arm he recalled vaguely seeing larry fall and the iron monster bearing mary atwood and me away what had happened to larry alton could not guess unless the robot had returned ignored him and taken his friend away during that day of june ninth alton summoned several of his scientific friends and to them he told fully what had happened to him they listened with a keen understanding and a rational knowledge of the possibility that what he said was true but credibility they could not give him the noon papers came out noted alienist attacked by ghost felled by one of the fantastic monsters of his brain a jocular jibing account then alton gave it up he had about decided to plead guilty in the magistrates court to disorderly conduct and all the rest of it that was preferable to being judged a liar or insane and then at about nine p m on the evening of june ninth the first of the mechanical monsters came stalking from the house on patent place the beginning of the revenge which tug had threatened when arrested The policeman at the corner, one McGuire, turned in the first hysterical alarm. He rushed into a little candy and stationery store, shouting that he had seen a piece of machinery running wild. His telephone call brought a squad of his comrades. The robot at first did no damage. McGuire later told how he saw it, as it emerged from the entryway of the Tug House. It came lurching out into the street, a giant thing of dull gray metal with tubular jointed legs, a body with a great bulging chest, a round head, Eight or ten feet above the pavement. "'Eyes that shot fire. "'The policeman took to his heels. "'There was a commotion in Patton Place "'during those next few minutes. "'Pedestrians saw the thing standing in the middle of the street, "'staring stupidly around it. "'The head wobbled. "'Some said that the eyes shot fire, "'others that it was not the eyes, "'but more like a torch in its mailed hand. "'The torch shot a small beam of light around the street, "'a beam which was dull red. "'The pedestrians fled.' Their cries brought people to the nearby house-windows. Women screamed. Presently bottles were thrown from the windows. One of these crashed against the iron shoulder of the monster. It turned its head, as though its neck were rubber, some said, and it gazed upward with a human gesture, as though it were not angry, but contemptuous. But still, beyond a step or two in one direction or another, it merely stood and waved its torch. The little dull red beam of light carried no more than twenty or thirty feet. The street in a few moments was clear of pedestrians, remained littered with glass from the broken bottles. A taxi came suddenly around the corner, and the driver, with an almost immediate tire puncture, saw the monster. He hauled up to the curb, left his cab, and ran. The robot saw the taxi cab and stood gazing. It turned its torch beam on it and seemed surprised that the thing did not move. Then, thinking evidently that this was a less cowardly enemy than the humans, it made a rush to it. The chauffeur had not turned off his engine when he fled, so the cab stood throbbing. The robot reached it, cuffed it with a huge mailed fist. The windshield broke, the windows were shattered, but the cab stirred purring, planted upon its four wheels. Strange encounter! They say that the robot tried to talk to it. At last, exasperated, it stepped backward, gathered itself, and pounced on it again. Stooping, it put one of its great arms down under the wheels, the other over the hood, and with prodigious strength heaved the cab into the air. It crashed on its side across the street, and in a moment was covered with flames. It was about this time that Patrolman McGuire came back to the scene. He shot at the monster a few times. Hit it, he was sure, but the robot did not heed him. The block was now in chaos. People stood at most of the windows. Crowds gathered at the distant street corners, while the blazing taxicab lighted the block with a lurid glare. No one dared approach within a hundred feet or so of the monster, but when, after a time, it showed no disposition to attack, throngs at every distant point of vantage tried to gather where they could see it. Those nearest reported back that its face was iron, that it had a nose, a wide, yawning mouth, and holes for eyes. There were certainly little lights in the eye-holes. A small, fluffy white dog went dashing up to the monster and barked bravely at its heels. It leaped nimbly away when the robot stooped to seize it. Then, from the robot's chest, the dull red torch-beam leaped out and down. It caught the little dog and clung to it for an instant. The dog stood transfixed, its bark turned to a yelp, then a gurgle. In a moment it fell on its side, then lay motionless with stiffened legs sticking out. All this happened within five minutes. McGuire's riot squad arrived, discreetly ranged itself at the end of the block and fired. The robot by then had retreated to the entryway of the Tug house, where it stood peering as though with curiosity at all this commotion. There came a clanging from the distance—someone had turned in a fire alarm. Through the gathered crowds and vehicles the engines came tearing up. Presently there was not one robot, but three—a dozen. More than that, many reports said. But certain it is that within half an hour of the first alarm the block in front of Tug's home held many of the iron monsters and there were many human bodies lying strewn there by then a few policemen had made a stand at the corner to protect the crowd against one of the robots the thing had made an unexpected infuriated rush there was a panic in the next block when a thousand people suddenly tried to run a score of people were trampled underfoot two or three of the robots ran into that next block ran impervious to the many shots which were now fired at them from what it was described as slots in the sides of their iron bodies they drew swords long dark burnished blades they ran and at each fallen human body they made a single stroke of decapitation or more generally cut the body in half the robots did not attack the fire engines emboldened by this firemen connected a hose and pumped a huge jet of water towards the tug house the robots then rushed it one huge mechanism some said it was twelve feet tall ran heedlessly into the fireman's high-pressure stream toppled backward from the force of the water and very strangely lay still killed rather out of order deranged it was not human to be killed but it lay motionless with the fire hose playing upon it then abruptly there was an explosion the fallen robot with a deafening report and a puff of green flame burst into flying metallic fragments like shrapnel Nearby windows were broken from the violent explosion and pieces of the flying metal were hurled a hundred feet or more one huge chunk evidently a plate of the thing's body struck into the crowd two blocks away and felled several people at this smashing of one of the mechanisms its brother robots went for the first time into aggressive action a hundred or more were pouring now from the vacant house of the absent tug the alarm by ten o'clock had spread throughout the entire city Police reserves were called out and by midnight soldiers were being mobilized. Panics were starting everywhere. Millions of people crowded in on small Manhattan Island, in the heart of which was this strange enemy. Panics. Yet human nature is very strange. Thousands of people started to leave Manhattan, but there were other thousands during that first skirmish who did their best to try and get into the neighborhood of Patton Place to see what was going on. They added greatly to the confusion. Traffic soon was stalled everywhere traffic officers confused frightened by the news which was bubbled at them from every side gave wrong orders accidents began to occur and then out of the growing confusion came tangles until like a damned stream all the city midsection was paralyzed vehicles were abandoned everywhere reports of what was happening on patton place grew more confused the gathering nearby crowds impeded the police and firemen the robots by ten o'clock were using a single great beam of dull red light it was two or three feet broad it came from a spluttering hissing cylinder mounted on runners which the robots dragged along the ground and the beam was like that of a great red searchlight it swung the length of patton place in both directions it hissed against the houses penetrated the open windows which now were all deserted swept the front cornices of the roofs where crowds of tenants and others were trying to hide the red beam drove back the ones near the edge except those who were stricken by its frigid blast and dropped like plummets into the street where the robots with flashing blades pounced upon them. Frigid was the blast of this giant light beam. The street, wet from the fire hose, was soon frozen with ice, ice which increased under the blast of the beam and melted in the warm air of the night when the ray turned away. From every distant point in the city awed crowds could see that great shaft when it occasionally shot upward to stain the sky with blood. Dr. Alton by midnight was with the city officials, telling them what he could of the origin of this calamity. They were a distracted group, indeed. There were a thousand things to do, and frantically they were giving orders, struggling to cope with conditions so suddenly unprecedented. A great city, millions of people, plunged into conditions unfathomable, and every moment growing worse, one calamity bringing another, in the city, with its myriad diverse of activities so interwoven. Around Alton the clattering, terrifying reports were surging. He sat there nearly all that night, and near dawn an official plane carried him in a flight over the city. The panics by midnight were causing the most deaths. Thousands—hundreds of thousands—were trying to leave the island. The tube trains, the subways, the elevateds were jammed. There were riots without number in them. Ferryboats and bridges were thronged to their capacity. Downtown Manhattan, fortunately comparatively empty, gave space to the crowds plunging down from the crowded foreign quarters bordering Greenwich Village by dawn it was estimated that five thousand people had been trampled to death by the panics in various parts of the city in the tubes beneath the rivers and on departing trains and another thousand or more had been killed by the robots how many of these monstrous metal men were now in evidence no one could guess a hundred or a thousand the time cage made many trips between that night of june ninth and tenth nineteen thirty five and a night in twenty nine thirty always it gauged its return to this same night The robots poured out into Patton Place. With running, stiff-legged steps, flashing swords, small light beams darting before them, they spread about the city. CHAPTER Seven: THE VENGEANCE OF TUG A myriad of scenes of horror were enacted. Metal travesties of the human form ran along the city streets, overturning stalled vehicles, climbing into houses, roaming dark hallways, breaking into rooms there was a woman who afterward told that she crouched in a corner clutching her child when the door of her room was burst in her husband who had kept them there thinking it was the safest thing to do fought futilely with the great thing of iron its sword slashed his head from his body with a single stroke the woman and the little child screamed but the monster ignored them they had a radio turned to a station in new jersey which was broadcasting the events the robot seized the instrument as though in a frenzy of anger tore it apart and then rushed from the room no one could give a connected picture of the events of that horrible night. It was a series of disjointed incidents out of which the imagination must construct the whole. The panics were everywhere. The streets were stalled with traffic and running, shouting, fighting people. And the area around Greenwich Village brought reports of continued horror. The robots were of many different forms, some pseudo-human, others great machines running amuck, Things more monstrous, more horrible even than those which mocked humanity. There was a great pot-bellied monster which forced its way somehow to a roof. It encountered a crouching woman and child in a corner of the parapet, seized them, one in each of its great iron hands, and whirled them out over the housetops. By dawn it seemed that the robots had mounted several projectors of the giant red beam on the roofs of Patton Place. They held a full square mile now around Tug's house. The police and firemen had long since given up fighting them they were needed elsewhere the police to try and cope with the panics and the firemen to fight the conflagrations which everywhere began springing up fires the natural outcome of chaos and fires incendiary made by criminals who took advantage of the disaster to fatten like ghouls upon the dead they prowled the streets they robbed and murdered at will the giant beams of the robots carried a frigid blast for miles by dawn of that june tenth the south wind was carrying from the enemy area a perceptible wave of cold even as far as Westchester. alton flying over the city saw the devastated area clearly ice in the streets smashed vehicles the gruesome litter of sword slashed human bodies and other human bodies plucked apart strewn alton's plane flew at an altitude of some two thousand feet in the growing daylight the dark prowling figures of the metal men were plainly seen there were no humans left alive in the captured area. The plane dropped a bomb into Washington Square where a dozen or two of the robots were gathered. It missed them. The plane's pilot had not realized that they were grouped around a projector. Its red shaft sprang up, caught the plane, and clung to it. Frigid blast. Even at that two thousand feet altitude, for a few seconds, Alton and the others were stiffened by the cold. The motor missed, very nearly stopped. Then an intervening rooftop cut off the beam, and the plane escaped. All this I have pictured from what Dr. Alton subsequently told me. He leaves my narrative now, since fate hereafter held him in the New York City of 1935. But he has described for me three horrible days and three still more horrible nights. The whole world now was alarmed. Every nation offered its forces of air and land and sea to overcome these gruesome invaders. Warships steamed for New York harbor. Soldiers were entrained and brought to the city outskirts. Airplanes flew overhead— On Long Island, Staten Island, and in New Jersey, infantry, tanks, and artillery were massed in readiness. But they were all very nearly powerless to attack. Manhattan Island still was thronged with refugees. It was not possible for the millions to escape, and for the first day there were hundreds of thousands hiding in their homes. The city could not be shelled. The influx of troops was hampered by the outrush of civilians. By the night of the 10th, nevertheless, 10,000 soldiers were surrounding the enemy area it embraced now all the mid-section of the island the soldiers rushed in machine-guns were set up but the robots were difficult to find with this direct attack they began fighting with an almost human caution their bodies were impervious to bullets save perhaps in the orifices of the face which might or might not be vulnerable but when attacked they skulked in the houses or crouched like cautious animals under the smashed vehicles Then there were times when they would wade forward directly into machine-gun fire, unharmed, plunging on till the gunners fled and the robots wreaked their fury upon the abandoned gun. The only hand-to-hand conflicts took place on the afternoon of June 10th. A full thousand soldiers were killed, and possibly six or eight of the robots. The troops were ordered away after that. They made lines across the island to the north and to the south to keep the enemy from increasing its area. Over Greenwich Village now, the circling plains, at their highest altitude, to avoid the upflung crimson beans, dropped bombs. Hundreds of houses were wrecked. Tug's house could not be positively identified, though the attack was directed at it most particularly. Afterward it was found by chance to have escaped. The night of June 10th brought new horrors. Against all the efforts of the troops and the artillery fire which now was shelling the Washington Square area, the giant mechanisms pushed north and south. By midnight, with their dull red beams illuminating the darkness of the canyon streets, they had reached the battery, and spread northward beyond the northern limits of Central Park. It is estimated that by then there were still a million people on Manhattan Island. The night of the 11th the robots made their real attack. Those who saw it, from planes overhead, say that upon a roof near Washington Square a machine was mounted from which a red beam sprang. It was not of parallel rays like the others, this one spread and of such power it was that it painted the leaden clouds of the threatening overcast night every plane at whatever high altitude felt its frigid blast and winged hastily away to safety spreading dull red beam it flashed with a range of miles its light seemed to cling to the clouds staining like blood and to cling to the air itself with a dull lurid radiance it was a hot night that june eleventh with a brewing thunderstorm. There had been occasional rumbles of thunder and lightning flashes. The temperature was perhaps ninety degrees Fahrenheit. Then the temperature began falling. A million people were hiding in the great apartment houses and homes of the northern sections, were still struggling to escape over the littered bridges or by the paralyzed transportation systems. And that million people saw the crimson radiance and felt the falling temperature. Eighty degrees, then seventy degrees. Within half an hour it was at thirty degrees in unheated houses in midsummer in the midst of panic the people were swept by chilling cold with no adequate clothing available they suffered greatly and then abruptly they were freezing children wailing with the cold then asleep in numbed last slumber zero weather in midsummer and below zero how cold it got there is no one to say the abandoned recording instrument in the weather bureau was found at two sixteen a m on the morning of june twelfth nineteen thirty five to have touched minus forty two degrees fahrenheit the gathering storm over the city burst with lightning and thunderclaps through the blood-red radiance and then snow began falling a steady white downpour a winter blizzard with the lightning flashing above it and the thunder crashing with the lightning and thunder and snow crazy winds sprang up they whirled and tossed the thick white snowflakes swept in blasts along the city streets it piled the snow in great drifts against the houses whirled and sucked it upward in white powdery geysers at two thirty a m there came a change the dull red radiance which swept the city changed in colour through the shades of the spectrum it swung up to violet and no longer was it a blast of cold but of heat of what inherent temperature the ray of that spreading beam may have been no one can say it caught the houses and everything inflammable burst into flame conflagrations were everywhere a thousand spots of yellow-red flames like torches with smoke rolling up from them to mingle with the violet glow overhead the blizzard was gone the snow ceased the storm-clouds rolled away blasted by the pendulum winds which lashed the city by three a m the city temperature was over one hundred degrees fahrenheit the dry blistering heat of a midsummer desert The northern city streets were littered with the bodies of people who had rushed from their homes and fallen in the heat, the wild winds, and the suffocating smoke outside. And then, flung back by the abnormal winds, the storm-clouds crashed together overhead. A terrible storm, born of outraged nature, vent itself on the city. The fires of the burning metropolis presently died under the torrent of falling water. Clouds of steam whirled and tossed and hissed close overhead, and there was a boiling hot rain. By dawn the radiance of that strange, spreading beam died away. The daylight showed a wrecked, dead city. Few humans indeed were left alive on Manhattan that dawn. The robots and their apparatus had gone. The vengeance of Tug against the New York City of 1935 was accomplished. To be continued. End of chapter 7